You're listening to the podcast, So You Want to Be a Writer, with Valerie Koo and Allison Tate. Valerie is an author, journalist, and national director of the Australian Writers' Centre, which is one of the world's leading providers of online and classroom courses for people who want to get published and write with confidence. Alison Tate is a freelance writer, blogger, and author of the best-selling series The Mapmaker Chronicles. She has more than 20 years' professional writing experience. Each week they explore the world of writing, publishing, and blogging to bring you news and opportunities, advice on how to succeed in the world of writing, interviews with top writers, and much more. With students enrolling from all over the world, you can find out more about the Australian Writer Centre at writercentre.com.au. Hello everyone and welcome to episode 80 of So You Want to Be a Writer. My name's Valerie Koo and I'm here with Alison Tate. How are you, Al? I'm, well, I'm nearly good. Nearly Not good? Right. Less. Why nearly? It's the last day of the school holidays today, so <sighs> I just have the one, the one last day to get through and then <laughs> I actually have some time to think, which I'm really looking forward to. What are you going to think about? I don't know. Just all manner of exciting things. I think as soon as I have a minute to myself, I'll just be flooded with ideas. I'll yeah, of course. Know. I'll get back well, to you, you on whether be, that works. You must be riding a high though because the third book in the Mapmaker series came out, your book, yes. and I've been watching it unfold on social media and there are people who are posting photos of themselves with a the book and saying how much they're loving it. How exciting. It is exciting. I absolutely love those people. Thank you so much. If you have posted a shelfie or got in touch with me in some way to let me know that you're reading the book and loving the book it's honestly like it's such a thrill and mm. I love to see them and share them and things like that so and I'm also handing out signed bookmarks to anyone who um who shares a shelfie of Breath of the Dragon so um you know if you if you do have one and you share it tag me so that I can send you a signed bookmark they're very gorgeous Fantastic. And I can't wait to get stuck in it, into it because it arrived through the mail because I ordered it online uh, on just before the weekend. And oh. I was thinking, oh, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to get stuck into this weekend. And then I realized I have the 270 oh. short stories, which I'm judging for the li- literary That's awards. right. The 810,000 <laughs> words or whatever it is. How did you go? Have you... Have you kind of made an inroad? I have made a dent, but I've decided that your book is the reward. So that will actually encourage me to, you know, get through those short stories and judge them, you know, efficiently so that I can then get down to to your book and that's that's my, that's my reward. Well, let's hope it's all worthwhile. Yes, but it's been it's I'm sure it will be. I'm sure it will be. Um and it's been fascinating actually. Uh, I haven't read all 270 yet. I'm still in the midst of it, but it's been fascinating reading all these short stories and seeing the talent that's out there some of these stories I'm just riveted and I just can't wait to to know what happens next short stories are such an art form too Mm. and I think that it's it's not until you actually sit down to write them that you realize you know when every single word has to count it takes a lot of thinking process to get it all you know to happen and to create a story that has a beginning a middle and an end in that short space of time it's very hard but you know what I'm finding that the biggest sin is that uh, many people are making I mean some people are just writing amazing amazing things and some people you know you can tell they've got a story there and they're actually good storytellers but the biggest sin well there's a couple of biggest sins which they all they need to do is you know work out the rules so to speak just some of the 
the things that that just don't work. And it's very much that they don't understand show, don't tell. Okay. And, and it's astounding the number of stories that I read that I go, oh, you know, this is actually – the story itself is good, but they don't understand, show, don't tell. And I'm just like, if only you just, you know, showed <laughs> and didn't tell, this would make for a much more powerful story. But you know, that's the, the most common error, so to speak. Yeah, and it's, it's, a, it's a very much um, a beginner thing too. Like I know that it's something that you learn, it, you learn with practice mm. and you get better with practice because I remember the first – novel I ever wrote. It was full of that. And I, I felt mm. like I needed to bash the reader over the head with mm. my, you know, just in case they missed it, you know, like <laughs> let's repeat that again, just in case, because you, um, it learning to leave some room in your story for the reader is mm. something that it really comes with practice, I think. Yes. Yes, mm. absolutely. Mm. But anyway, let us move on to uh, what What else is happening, though, with, with you? Uh, you know, uh, have you been just consumed by children? Oh, look, holidays? I sort of have over the last couple of weeks. I've been very much, uh, it's, it's all been focused on the launch of Breath of the Dragon mm. and just, you know, surviving the, the kids, really. When I say surviving, you just, when you're a work-at-home mum, like the reason you do it is so that you can spend time with your children, like to be with your children when they're there. So there's always that push me, pull you thing in the holidays of, you know, you want to be with them and and you do. So we go to the beach and we go to the park and we do all those things that you do with, but Mm. always in the back of my mind is that feeling of, oh, I should be doing that. I should be doing that. You know, so I do a lot of late nights in the holidays and then that Mm. makes me cranky. (laughs) And then we have daylight savings arriving with that extra hour and the whole thing just gets thrown out. But, you know, I mean, overall, we've had a fantastic holidays. Um, It's just that the work goes to the back burner and that's not my natural forte. Like Mm. I I really love what I do and I like it. I like to be doing it. So, um, you know, it's just it's no different to every other working mum. You just have that horrible pull all the time of feeling you should be somewhere else. But, you know, you learn to to live with it. Anyway. What have you got for us this week? Well, uh, I just wanted to give a shout out to some uh, listeners who have Ooh. asked where they can find the show notes. So I just want to remind everyone that you can get the show notes at writerscentercomau slash podcast. So that's where we will include all of the links that we refer to, all of the resources that we share. So feel free to pop over there and also to join the newsletter of the Australian Writers' Centre as well because um, there's lots of great tips and resources and competitions in there as well. That's right. And there's always a transcript of our author interview in the yes. show notes. So if you listen to it and you find it fascinating, which no doubt you will, and you want to just <laughs> kind of chase up some point, um, there a transcript is in the show notes as well. Yes. Now, sometimes that transcript is in there a couple of weeks later just because yeah. of our busy transcriptionist, but yeah. it does always appear. But let's move on to the world of writing and blogging and publishing this week. Now, big news in the publishing world, Alison. You mm. might not get excited by this, but some people with uh, maybe children of a certain age, and I know some women you know, who aren't that age discriminatory in their preferences, uh, One Direction (laughs) are writing a kid's book. Oh, 
Yes. Well, they're joining other celebrities to write a kids' book. It's actually for charity, but I have no doubt that this book is going to be a cracker. Well, not a cracker, but a really good seller because, you know, hello, One Direction. It's called The Curious Tale of Fee Rex. That's F-I, Rex. And there are other people on the project as well, including Kylie Minogue, Paul McCartney, and, and so on. Kate Moss. Kate yes. Moss is writing a book. Fantastic. Yes. Bear Grylls is in it. Wow. Well, you know yes. what? It's, you know, the fact that it's uh, for children's charity, I hope it sells 80 billion copies. I think yes. it's a fantastic project. And I love it when people um, put their skills to other things because, you know, we're talking about most of the people that are on that list are songwriters or, you know, they write in other ways. And it's always interesting to see how those skills come out in, you know, the written form. Because, yes. you know, I read Paul Kelly's um Paul Kelly's book, where he t- the memoir, where he talks about you know he talked about all his songs and all that sort of stuff, and I found it really interesting because I love his he he writes very much a story in a song, and mm. I was really interested to see how that skill translated into the written word, and yes. it was some um, quite an interesting exercise. So, um, you know what, go Fee Rex. Yeah, go Ferex. Hmm. Now, the next link uh, that I found was actually called, well, it's, it is called How to Sell More Books and Grow Your Fan Base at Author Events. Now, a lot of publishers do tell their authors, you need to get out there, you need to be speaking, you need to go to book clubs, you need to talk at this library or whatever it is yeah. in order for you to uh, – you know, drum up interest uh, in in your book so people will buy it. Now, I would love your thoughts on that because you're in the throes of that now or you're about to be. Yep. And, um, and, and let me ask you, do you think it's important or how effective is it for you to do author events and do you do them? I do do them. Um, I actually really enjoy them. So they're not a trial for me. I actually quite like going and talking to people about books and writing and, you know, what what I do and answering questions and stuff. So I do do them. Um, I think that social media has added, you know, if you're on social media and you're doing author events, you can make any author event about a thousand times bigger than it actually is. Because the reality of most Mm. author events, unless you're doing a big festivals and things like that, is that you might be talking to you know, 10 or 20 people at a time. And that can feel like a very, very hard slog. And it is, you know, like you you, you are sort of pretty much one-on-one meeting readers and things like that, which, um, you know, from my perspective is great, but is not so, like a lot of authors don't enjoy public speaking. Mm. And so they do find it difficult. Um, but with social media, it gives you the opportunity to, you know, that message of, of going and talking to those people, the fact that you're doing those events, not only do you get to share the fact that you're, you know, that the event is on in the hopes that more people may come to your event. But you get to share the fact that you've done the event and show photos of the event and other people will see those and like those. And so their friends then will see that you've done this event and their interest may be piqued in what you're doing. So I do believe that you need to make them bigger than they are because they are small. But Mm. I always remember John uh, Purcell from Booktopia in that interview that he did with us talking about the fact that Matthew Riley never said no. He went to everything. He went to right. book groups. He went to libraries. He went to bookshops. He went everywhere. And when he the, was starting out. When he was starting out. Mm. Um, and I think he still does a lot of that sort of stuff. Not so much maybe in the last couple of years. But people who met him at those events still rem- like feel like he's their best friend. Like they've met. They know each other. They've bought every single book he's ever put out. Yes. They have become his most his biggest and most raving fans. Mm. And 
it's absolutely like that kind of stuff, that one-on-one contact with people, you can never underestimate how important that can be for building word of mouth. And that's really, really important. So I have another question and that Mm -hmm. is at such author events, is your book for sale? Uh, Generally it is. Yes. Like, because I will talk at libraries or bookshops and those events will often be um, supported by a bookseller of some type. Mm -hmm. However, I do school visits as well, as Mm -hmm. you know, Mm -hmm. and often at a school visit, the books are not for sale. It's just me talking to the kids, doing my thing. And that is why I have bookmarks because I take my bookmarks to those events and the kids will, um, and sometimes the school will do orders as well. Like they will be interested, you know, they'll do, they'll, they'll do some kind of book order through a local, one of their local bookshops. Um, but I take bookmarks because if the kid goes home raving about the fact of how much they enjoyed the um, the talk that I did, I want them to be able to show the mum the name of the book. <laughs> yes, yes, of <laughs> Do you know course. What I'm <laughs> yeah. So for a school visit, bookmarks are fabulous because kids love them too, and yes. you, you can sign them. You know, mm. it's all very personal. So I have those for, for school visits. Um, so surely, though, you need to be kind of discerning. Some authors can get invited to everything yep. and they travel. Like yep. I've seen some authors, all they do, they're driving to Wangaratta or they're driving to yep. Broken Hill or they're driving to Sutherland or wherever and they're speaking to 10 or 20 people. And is that is that a good use of their time? Well, I think it depends on your on your strategy and I think it also depends on whether or not you can make that 10 or 20 people bigger than it actually is. Yes. Um, I do feel that, you know, if you're going to do that, then you need to be able to, you know, talk to more people about the, the event than we're actually at the event, if you know mm. what I'm saying. Mm. Um, as to whether it's a good use of time, you know, look, no matter which way you look at it, and it, it comes down to this, word of mouth sells books. Yeah, People read your book and talk about your book to other people. And this is particularly the case with kids um, from my perspective. Mm. Um, you know, kids recommend books to each other all the time. And if they get into a series and they love it, they will get all their friends into that series as well. And so, you know, it, it, you can never, you can't underestimate the value of talking to one person. And I yes. think that that's something that's important. I have, you know, children myself, so I can't you know, and I have to make this quite clear, I can't travel to lots of different things all the time. Yes. But what I try to do is make the most of the time when I do go. So if I go to Sydney um, for a couple of days, for example, I'll try to do five schools and a, you know, something else while I'm there. Um, so it's a matter of, okay, this is the time I have and I'm going to try and talk to as many people as I can in the time that I have. Yeah. Um, so I think it comes down to where you're at in your career as mm. much as anything. And, yes, true. And what your strategy is. Yes, because I'm sure Matthew Riley doesn't go to everything he's asked to now. Um, no, probably not. But I still, I think he still goes to lots of things. Yes, yes. You know, you've got to yeah, put yourself in front. You have to put yourself in front of people. It's mm. really important. Okay, fantastic. Mm. Well, let's move on to something quite a bit different. And this was an article that was in the Sydney Morning Herald. Uh, and thank you to Dean for sending this to us. Why story time is better when Dad's reading the book mm. now? Interesting. Very interesting. Yes, because it talks about how uh, people, well, children kind of get a better experience in a sense uh, when their dad reads the book. Well, what do you think? I think they get a different experience because I know that, (laughs) well, no, I do. I I think it's really important, particularly with boys, for dads to be seen to be reading and for dads to be reading. You you know, it's like anything, you've got to role model 
the the kind of behaviour that you want. So if you want your kids to read and you never picked up a book in your whole life, it's not going to happen. They have to be surrounded by books. You have to read with them, all those things. So the builder and I both read Mm. to the boys separately um, together, you know, et cetera. Um, and I know that they love, you know, it's, it's often the only one-on-one time that they will have with him throughout the whole day. Whereas I'm there all the time and I'm, you know, <laughs> they're, so, they're so bored with me. It's not funny. Um, which is not to say that they don't enjoy me reading to them, um, because we read in quite different ways. And I love the fact that they mentioned in this article that dads will, um, often bring in a, you know, a practical, you know, if you're talking about a ladder in a book, that a dad mm. will also talk about the last time they used a ladder. Mm. And there's a lot of that going on in our household that, you know, um, the builder <laughs> takes a much more practical approach to and detailed approach to all things but, than I do. I'm a hit the highlights kind of a girl. Um, <laughs> but, you know, I think it's, look, I, you know, whether is it better? I don't know. It's just well, different. And I well, think that that's important. What's interesting, though, the study says that they found that fathers who read frequently to their children at a young age had an impact on their language development one year later and their literacy development two years later. Uh, but when mothers read the books, this did not have a significant impact on child development. <laughs> So I'm also that... fascinated by how they measure this stuff. Like, what do they? How do they even know? Do they not have mum read at all to one family so that we know the difference? I mean, I, I don't know. Look, I, I think as long as someone is reading to the kid, yes, that's what's important. And I, Did... I think that you know, if both of you are doing it at different times, then awesome. Did you read? Uh, there was the study of um, hurricanes, and they found that the hurricanes that were named after women, like Hurricane Katrina, would actually produce more fatalities than oh. the hurricanes that were named after men. And largely, it was because when they delved into it further, a lot of the people, the residents who were going to be impacted by the hurricane, didn't think that it was going to be dangerous enough for them to evacuate and leave and therefore they died because the because the women's names, name. yeah, it sounded more feminine. Whereas if oh. it was Hurricane Darth Vader, they would have evacuated as opposed to Hurricane Katrina. So, but they're all, aren't they all named after women? Like, well, there are, I can't there think are of some a single hurricanes. one. Uh, there are some hurricanes I think that are named after men. I don't know. I'm just looking at Cyclone Tracy and you know what? Like who wants to get in the way of that? So <laughs> That's right. But maybe if it was called Cyclone, you know. Greg. Yeah, Greg. <laughs> I mean, seriously, are you running because it's called Cyclone Greg? I'm not. Tracy. <gasps> oh, yes. Anyway. Don't they know that the, the female of the species is deadlier than the male? Apparently not. Mm. Uh, but anyway, yeah. let us move anyway, on. Anyway, let's move on. Uh, I came across an interesting link earlier this week and it was questions to ask yourself before co-authoring a book. Now, I thought that was an interesting thing to have a chat about because both you and I have co-authored books. And the thing is that you've obviously co-authored yours with somebody you've co- um, who you know quite well. And yep. I've, I co-authored uh, my book with somebody who I worked with and therefore knew quite well professionally. We knew how each other worked and how we mm-hmm. write. Mm-hmm. Uh, but sometimes, because people say to me, like I, I had a meeting just only about four, or th- two weeks ago from uh, two people who wanted to co-author a book together and they wanted to get some tips on how they should do it and stuff like that. If you don't know someone that well and you're thinking of co-authoring a book for whatever reason, what are what is your advice on that? What are some of the questions you should be asking yourself? 
Well, I think the first question you want to ask yourself is why? Why do you yes. want to co-author a book with this person, particularly mm. if you don't know this person particularly well? Like what – I mean, it's a massive project to undertake and you want mm. to feel – you need to know, I think if you're going to co-author a project like that, you, it's like any kind of group work. You want to feel like you're in a, a trusting and trusted environment. Mm. You don't want to feel like you're going to end up doing all the work and someone else is going to take half the royalties. You don't yes. want to do that. No. Um, I think it's really, really important to know if you're on the same page with regards to writing, not so much process, although that can help, um, but my my co-author and I have quite different approaches to writing Mm -hmm. and yet it worked okay together because we managed to work through those um what what we did have in common was a similar style a similar tone Mm. um it's very very difficult to to bring out a book with a cohesive voice if you have completely different writing styles it's very very difficult so you need to have some kind of you know cohesion as far as your, your tone your voice goes and you also need to be able to like thrash out ahead how are you going to go about it? Like, are you going to write mm. 2,000 words each and mm. stop and then flip it over? Are you going to write a chapter each and turn it about? How, Or are you going to sort of try and do each chapter together? How are you actually going to do it? Like in the case of my co-author and myself, all we did was throw the book at each other when we'd had enough. So some days <laughs> you might write 5,000 words and just go, oh, God, I've got no idea what to do next. And other days, you know, you'd get it back after 200, you know, it was that kind mm. of stuff. So... Um, but but that needs to be okay. So yes. you need to have the kind of relationship with your co-author where that's going to be all right. Because otherwise, if you're writing 5,000 and then you get it back the next day and they've written 200, mm. are you going to be cross or are you mm. going to go, yeah, I can totally see why you did that. So, you know, it's um, there's a lot to thrash out uh, before you start, I think. Yes, definitely. Would you agree? Oh, yeah, absolutely. I think that the, at the very beginning, ask yourself, uh, not just why, but well, yeah, why, but what are your personal goals for this book? Mm-hmm. And when I met with these two people who wanted to co-author this book, I said, before we get into the nuts and bolts of how you divide it up, you know, how you how you do the work, how you edit it together, I need to ask you, what are your personal goals for this book? And it was kind of the first time that they even admitted this to each other, not that they were trying to hide it or anything. They just thought a book was a great idea because they were both experts in this particular field. And mm-hmm. one wanted to write the book to raise her profile and that was her primary reason. So it kind of, like if it sold, great, but if it, but that wasn't her main um, purpose. Her main purpose was to have a book to her name. And the other one, she wanted a new rev- a, a revenue stream. Mm. And so they had, very different goals. So one actually didn't care how many it sold as long as she had a book mm. to her name. And one, she wanted to sell heaps and heaps and heaps. And it'd have to sell heaps because she would only be getting half the royalties, right? Mm. So you'd have to sell double even what she was hoping. Yeah. Uh, and in the end, they uh, they had to think about it after our conversation and they actually decided not to go ahead mm. because their, their goals weren't aligned at all. No. I think mm. they made the right decision. In not yes. going ahead with Absolutely. when when you're di- at diametrically opposed mm. sort of ends of the 
table because there. because yeah even though the writing could go well uh that's as we both know that's only the beginning after yeah. that you've got to sell and market the book and there's a lot of promo and if you, yep. you you also need to both participate in that and you need to work mm. out what your strategy is going to be for that how that's going to work what are you going to do are you going to do another book is that you know are you aiming to do more or is this mm. just going to be like a one-off it, yeah it's it's really important to have some idea of of what you're going to do going forward as well mm. Mm. Well, let us move on then. Speaking of books, let's talk about NaNoWriMo, which is let's, coming up. Yes. So the official National Novel Writing Month website, NaNoWriMo.org, is open as of today. And Yay. it's very, very exciting. Um, mm. So you can sign up to join in. And if you don't know what NaNoWriMo is, National Novel Writing Month is a challenge to write 50,000 words in 30 days. It's cool. a massive international event. Mm. Join up to the group because there's a whole lot of different stuff that goes on there, but mostly you want to get involved in it because of the graph. Love the graph. Um, so you've <laughs> essentially got to write 1,617 words a day or something to make that 50,000. And if you um, you put your word count in each day and then the graph rises and rises and rises. And people who use Scrivener are, are going to be all over that because they've yes. already got graphs in their life on a daily basis. But there's something about the nanograph that is like the holy grail of graphs and you should, you know, sign up just for that. So I've started myself um, with my friend Alison Rushby. We have a little uh, Facebook support group for NaNoWriMo this year. It's called Write a Book with Owls because that's how we work. <laughs> We're so cute. Um, Nano group. And um, the details are on my Facebook page if you want to join us. Um, and I've, I've actually just had a tweet from someone, hello, Katie Elizabeth, who has just joined Facebook specifically so she can join that group. Wow. Oh, fantastic. <laughs> Which is exciting. But, um, yeah, I, I mean, have you ever done NaNoWriMo? No, I oh, have wow. always contemplated it mm-hmm. and I just, I just get scared. I, I will admit it. But Why I know I should scared? get over it. Oh, that I won't get to the 50,000. I know that many people don't get to the 50,000. No, I have never got to the 50,000. I've done it several times. In fact, I wrote the first draft of the first Mapmaker Chronicles book in NaNoWriMo a couple of years ago, and I still only got 48,500 words. I know you would be like beside yourself with that, wouldn't you? But I was <laughs> I was working on the pre- – I always work on the premise with um, NaNoWriMo. For me, it's all about the first draft of a new project, which is yes. what it should be. And my theory is that if I get to November the 30 and I have – um, like 5,000 words, that is 5,000 more words on that project than I had on November the 1, on November the, one, November the 1st. <laughs> yes. And so therefore that's progress. I work on it like that. I mean, I Maybe, do my best yes. to, to crack it, but, you know, some, one year I got about 22,000 words. It was like nothing. But I usually get really close to 50,000, but not quite. Yeah, that's great. I'm, well, yeah, I don't know. I'm, I'll let you know. I'll let you know. But I do encourage, you know, I do encourage people to think about it because, as you say, if you've only gotten 5,000 words, that's 5,000 words more than It's than all you had about otherwise. just getting involved and getting started and not being scared. And if it's perfect for people like me who just, you know, mm. like to blast out a first draft without too much, you know, thought because you're not allowed to edit. You can't go back. Yes, no, there's no time. Pushing forward, pushing forward, pushing forward. And then what you end up at the end, I mean, 50,000 words is not an adult novel mm. at all. You'd need at least another 25,000 to be in the ballpark. It is a it is a kid's novel length, like for middle grade, the kind of mm. area that I write, but you still, it's a first draft, you know. You go back and you rewrite the whole thing again, but at least you've got something to work with. And yes. that's what it's all about, Valerie. All right. Mm. Well, 
maybe I'll be inspired by our writing craft book this week, which we started talking about last week, uh, Big Magic by Elizabeth Gilbert, but I only, you know, um, read about 20 pages. (laughs) But I finished the book now. Oh, good. So now you can tell us about it. What did you think, Valerie? Well, I enjoyed it, actually, and I know that there are a lot of people out there who are raving about it, but there are also a lot of people out there who are just going, meh, and aren't very excited by it at all. Mm -hmm. Uh, And I have to say that I think it's extremely well written. I just enjoy reading Elizabeth Gilbert for the most part, especially her nonfiction. And... um, But, you know, if you think that you are going to read it and the heavens are going to open and inspiration is going to hit you within those pages, then probably that's not going to happen. There's nothing new in this book. It is effectively – no heavens. It is effectively a modern-day version of The Artist's Way by Julia Cameron. I've said this before. and uh, But it is still – I still enjoyed it for, you know, the sentence structure, the way she she expresses things. And ultimately, it's about the fact that we all have creativity inside of us and that we need to – allow ourselves to explore that and to allow ourselves to pursue the things that we are passionate about, pursue the things that are just a little niggle in the back of our head. Oh, should we try playing the saxophone? Should we try writing this poem? Should we um, go dancing in in the moonlight? Uh, And it's (laughs) – or whatever it is. I can see you doing that. But I think what she makes a valid point in that because some people say, but I don't know, I don't have a passion, which is fair enough. Some people don't haven't identified, you know, something that they're passionate about. And she, her valid point is follow something that's just a remote area of interest, even just Mm. follow that down a path and just see where it takes you. And it may not take you to something that you're going to change your life over, but it Mm. may. So Mm. follow that area of interest. I I really like it. And the bit that that resonated a lot with me was a story that she tells about a woman who, you know, she has some day job. I don't even know what it is. But she just, in her 40s, she just decided, you know what, I used to love ice skating as a child and uh, I'm going to just see, you know, might take up ice skating again. So she started taking up ice skating, you know, early in the morning, like 6 a.m. because she she had a day job so that she had to fit it in around that. And then she thought, you know what, I love this. So she ice skates three mornings a week and she doesn't do it because she wants to become a world champion ice skater. She doesn't do it because she's going to achieve some kind of medal or or badge or, or exam or anything like that. She does it for the sheer love of it and she commits mm. to to that um, and makes it fit into her life because it just brings her incredible joy and expression and freedom and 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 she just loves it. And, and I thought, you know what, I've got to do a lot more of that. Mm. And I encourage other people to as well. Hmm. But anyway, that's my Excellent. Well, take thank you for on that. Big Ice Magic. Mm, beautiful. <laughs> right. What's The next, world of Val? blogging. You oh, have a link in the world of blogging. Of blogging. Um, I do have a, just a, a, a quite nice little uh, overview blog, uh, 
post. Mm-hmm. Listen to me, I sound like Donald Duck. Um, <laughs> so it's it, it's on the blog of Anne R. Allen, who I think I have mentioned before, and she writes a very, very good informative blog for um, authors and writers. Mm. And her latest post is called How to Start a Blog in 20 Easy Steps, a Guide for New Author Bloggers. Mm. Um, so there's a whole lot of just sort of basic, you know, how to – get started, what to look at. You know, she talks a bit about Google+. Plus. She talks about choosing a platform. Um, the thing I think that I took out of it most of all as someone who has been blogging for a long time and someone who's sort of tried a whole lot of different things in blogging is she talks about commenting and interacting right. with other commenters on high-profile blogs. Now, the only reason I bring this up is that I think that this is something that's really gone out of fashion in the last yeah. couple of years. Yep. Um, and I think that it's something that was never really in fashion for a lot of author blogs and mm. writer, you know, blogs. And I have to say, I think it is one of the most valuable, still one of the most valuable things that you can do um, as an author blogger. Now, not necessarily for SEO or, or any of the other things that people bang on about with blogging, mm. but for the fact that it allows you to build a tribe of bloggers around you. And when it comes to actually, you know, you get a book up and you're, you're launching your book and stuff like that, there is no better way to expand the reach of your word of mouth on social media or blogging than to be surrounded by other bloggers because they all have their own audiences. And if you are a supportive of their work, they will be, it's a very reciprocal world. If you Mm. are supportive of their work, they will be supportive of your work. And it is the quickest way to get your message out into areas of the blogosphere that you possibly don't go to yourself. Mm. Um, and it's, it has to be a real thing. Like it's got to be – I'm not talking about cynically just, you know, choosing people and, and you know, targeting them. Mm. I'm talking about making connections with people. And this is something that comes up a lot in blogging and it's something that author bloggers overlook. And I really can't stress enough how valuable it can be. Mm. Absolutely. So that's what I think. And it's worth reading. There's 20 easy steps. If you're a new blogger or you're starting out or you're thinking about starting an author blog, have a look at it because it's just a really nice, easy step, step by step overview of what to, um, what you can do to get started. And we'll put the link in the show notes. We will put the link in the show notes. So who is our writer in residence this week? Oh, well, our writer in residence this week is the lovely Mary Rose McColl, who we are talking about her fifth book today and it was a really interesting conversation because she she won or no she was the runner-up of the Vogel Prize in 1995 so she was writing quite literary work or you know and she would now say that she wasn't writing anything different but it's being marketed differently as Mm. you know sort of high-end commercial women's fiction um historical and um her fourth book was an international bestseller so she's written you know she had written the three books her fourth book is an international bestseller and this is her follow-up book Mm. um and we had a very very interesting chat just about you know the changes that she's seen in the publishing industry um you know just and obviously writing in general and all the different things so i'm hoping that you guys We'll get a lot out of this. It's Mary Rose McCall. Mary Rose McCall is the author of five novels, a non-fiction book, short stories, feature journalism and essays. She describes herself as a writer with current interests in families, children and mountains, which is interesting. Her first novel, No Safe Place, was runner-up in the 1995 The Australian Vogels Literary Award and her fifth novel, Swimming Home, has just been released. Welcome to the show, Mary Rose. 
And thanks, Alison. Lovely to be with you. All right. So let's start at the beginning. You were a runner-up in the Vogels in 1995. How did you come to enter and what did that experience mean for you? Just cast your mind back there. Well, uh, I, I actually did a master's um, in creative. I mean, I, one of the reasons that I think the Australian Writers' Centre um, is important is I'm a big fan of um, people learning about writing. Mm. And so I did a master's in creative writing. I was one of the, I was the first graduate, I think, from the University of Queensland's um, uh, master's, master of Arts in Creative Writing. And um, as my thesis, I wrote a novel and, uh, you know, it, I didn't, I mean, I was writing kind of every morning, early in the morning. I didn't even print it out until I had 50,000 words. I wasn't sort of mm. terribly um, confident as a writer. Um, but what the master's program gave me most of all was other writers who were, if not on the same journey as me, uh, were kind of working on um, something that was of interest to me. So we had a, I had a couple of other novelists. There was a playwright, um, a dramaturg, uh, someone who was writing a film script. Mm. And we, we sort of, the, 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 there were sort of four or five of us who, um, formed a little writing group, if you like, like a local writing group, only we were all doing a master's, um, and worked together, you know, critiquing each other's work. And that was fantastic. Um, I'm a great fan of doing that, but at the same time, um, I also know that over time those groups start to get so enamoured of each other's work and of each other that the red wine seems to kind of replace the critiquing and I got softer, you know, with my colleagues and I think they got softer with me. But, but as a process, I think having a writing buddy or writing buddies is really important. Um, I put the novel in for the Vogel Award, um, No Safe Place, my first novel, which was seems a very long time ago now because it was. Um, and I always say to beginning writers that putting in for competitions is a really good thing to do um, for a very pragmatic reason. If you send um, a, an unsolicited manuscript to a publisher, let alone an agent, to a publisher, I think a lot of them don't read them. Um, and the, the ones that do, I think Penguin, what is it, they get 2,000 manuscripts a year or mm. something like that. So mm. you're, not, you're not going to get any kind of um, reading. If you put in for competition you probably want a three or four hundred and you know for a fact that someone will read it because they have to judge it. So mm. so you're already changing the odds and you're changing the, the conversation in a sense. You're getting your work read. Um, so I put it in for the Vogel, not even thinking of that really. I just did because I was under 35 and um, it was a competition and it didn't win. Um, and I have to say I'm glad it didn't win because the judges pick. I, I think that kind of success would have been difficult because it was the year after um, Helen Benedenko and as it was, mm. there was already sort of a lot, I got a lot of publicity because of Helen Benedenko. Um, but also uh, the publishers pick from the shortlist because they're not the judges, of course, they're mm. the publisher. Alan and Unwin pick the books they might like to publish and so they picked mine, it was the runner-up and so they published um, No Safe Place. So... Um, you know, that was my journey to, I think that was your question. I hope that was your question, but I answered Yeah, it was. Yeah, I just, I mean, yeah, because, you know, it was how did you come to enter and what did the experience mean for you? So, I mean, basically it, it got you over the line with a publisher, which is what you, what you were hoping for. Yes. Yeah. Although I think, I wouldn't say that, um, I was as strategic as all that. I think I just thought, oh yes, I'll put it in for the Vogel and no one was more surprised than I was 
um, when I got the call from so- Sophie Cunningham, and I was over the moon, but I, but I don't think I'd thought it through to as strategically as I just outlined it then. I yeah, think I yeah. just thought, yes, I've got a novel. I'll put it in for this award. Give it a go. Um, and, you know, and having said that, I you know, it wasn't um, the first thing I'd written. I'd, I've been sort of writing stories you know, pretty well since primary school. So, mm. I, you know, I'm sort of, uh, I, words and, and, and stories are just my thing. Had you had you tried to have it published in other ways at that point or was this was just like the no, first no, thing that, that you... No, no, yeah. that was my first... Um, I, look, I, te- no, I tell a lie, when I was 17, I sent a bunch of poems mm. to a publisher that I found. Um, I don't even know how I found the publisher. And he wrote a beautiful letter back about how uh, how... I had an understanding beyond my years of life's vicissitudes, um, but that he wasn't going to publish them. Um, but it was a sweet letter. It was very sort of old school. It must have been an old school publisher. Did you frame um, it? I would have kept that one. <laughs> yeah, I, I don't know what I did with it, Alison. Yes, I should have. Yeah, I should have, yeah. So do you still have a writing group? Is there any sort of, you know, vestige of that of that group left for you? Uh, well, I have, I have a number of um, writers who I... Um, who I work with at different levels. So I have um, a writing buddy, uh, Christina Olson, and we we wrote our fourth novels together, I think. And mm-hmm. then we we've written where we sort of would we'd meet every week. She'd walk, I'd swim, we'd meet and have toast and swap bits of work and talk about where we're going. And we still do that. We're sort of doing that. Um, Kim Wilkins, Kimberly Freeman, uh, Aka Kimberly Freeman. Um, is a very dear friend, and she's read and critiqued um, a number of manuscripts when uh, manuscripts when I've asked her to. Mm. Um, and then some other writer mums at my son's primary school, um, uh, Louise Limerick and Kate Morton, and I used to have coffee occasionally. Um, well, actually, every month or so while we were working on the last on this novel, Swimming Home. Mm. Um, uh, but that was really, you know, it wasn't swapping work. It was more to sort of just talk about issues more generally. So, so I've, I do definitely have a community of writers, and um, and I would always, always um, bounce ideas off, um, you know, people before as I kind of write them. I like working that. Way. I love writing collaboratively, actually. Mm. It's important. I think it's important also just to have people around you that understand, you know, what you're going through or how yeah. you know the process you're you're trying to what you're trying to achieve. Yeah. All right. So when it came to writing your second novel, like, did you feel any pressure or expect- expectation? Like having sort of you know done so well with the first one, was there any sort of um, feeling that you had to somehow top it or anything like that? Uh, well, I didn't. I don't know about top it, but I I did um, get myself. Uh, I can I can make. You know, I'm a writer. I can make the most pleasurable activities in life absolutely excruciating without <laughs> actually working on it very hard at all. Um, and so uh, I had a lot, a lot of, you know, the difficult second novel, and I've just written the difficult fifth novel. Mm. Um, uh, yes, I, I can remember um, Angels in the Architecture having a... Um, I used to talk about it's the second winter of my second novel, um, you know, because it just took years and years and years. I used to do a talk where I used to talk about how my teeth fell out and I became ill and I became one of those people who talked about their health all the time. Mm-hmm. Um, it certainly was a very difficult um, uh, writing process. The novel actually, Angels in the Architecture, uh, is a lovely um, idea for a story. It's set in a, a kind of an old church 
um, that burns down and, and an architect, a young architect, a lovely character, discovers a skeleton. And I'm saying that not because I'm trying to sell copies of <laughs> Angels in the Architecture, it's out of print. I'm saying it because it's a novel I would I would like one day to revisit because I know a lot more about character and story now. And yeah. I, really, I really lived in that story in the same way I've kind of lived in um, Swimming Home, that right. was the last one, and in Falling Snow. And so I'd very much like to go back with the skills I have now and, you know, sort of reimagine it almost. Mm, okay. That'd be an interesting process, I think, too, like to to take what you know now and the experience that you have now that you didn't have then and sort of, you know, re-midwife the book almost. Yeah, Alison, it would. And I think there's been famous people Famous kind of examples where people have done that, and I obviously can't think of any of them. No, so of course not, because no, that, that, that would be helpful. too useful. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so your fourth novel, In Falling Snow, was I mean, you talked about the difficult fifth novel. Your fourth novel, In Falling Snow, was an international bestseller, and now you're following up with Swimming Home. So, has your writing process changed, you know, from your first novel to now, and why was the fifth novel difficult? Oh well, only because you know it's a, they're all difficult. Um, so in terms, <laughs> like you know, the difficult second novel is a famous thing. So yeah, I used yeah, to say yeah, the yeah. difficult third, the difficult fourth, the difficult fifth. Yeah. Um, the, my writing process. So I am. Uh, so just technically, it's changed enormously. Um, I, and in fact, I often tell people that I'm going backwards. Oh. on the information superhighway. So, um, Nozel Place, I typed on a Mac Classic 2. I thought I was the um, coolest kid on the block because I was typing straight into a very um, modern machine. I didn't even print it till I had a finished manuscript, mm. so I didn't even deal with paper. Um, this is way before ebook. And so, um, I, uh, you know, that was the kind of technology I used. When I turned to write the second novel and had so much trouble, suddenly the computer file seemed incredibly oppressive and linear. And it shouldn't because you can go anywhere in the file, but it did. And so I started tricking myself in various ways. So this is a combination of technology and ego getting in the way, I guess, which I think for me has been the battle of um, of my writing life. Um, so I, I started just writing in notebooks uh, little scenes and ideas and character sketches and I'd, do, I'd go to coffee shops and if the writing came, I'd write and if not, I wouldn't. And then I sort of slowly um, wound up with an enormous mess, really, of <laughs> notebooks full of complete and other um, nonsense. Um, but somehow I pulled that together into a book um, and that, you know, Angels in the Architecture. So, so, so the cost of doing it that new way was that um, you would have, you would have richness. You would have quite a lot of richness in character, starting, starting to develop a, a capacity for developing character. You'd have some kind of rich detail and description and stuff like that. But what you wouldn't have any of is a plot <laughs> and not all have to have plots. And so then, therefore, I'd have to somehow, you know, work all that material into a direction. My third novel, um, uh, Killing Superman, I wrote on, um, on index cards and notebooks, and I had three novels on the go at that time, one of which was in Falling Snow in very early draft, and I would write in different coloured pens and throw the cards into boxes. And then something happens where I think, well, it's time to type all that up, and, and, and so that's when you've really got to start thinking about story. Um, I've kept writing in notebooks uh, and for um, 
the fourth novel uh, for in falling snow in the early drafts, I think I'm right about this, but I had a baby, and so we were living in a house where if I turned on the light, I would wake him up, which I didn't want to do because I wanted to write. So I wrote it by candlelight. And so you see we're getting less and less technology. So it's, it's, I always have to explain it that way because I want people to know that I don't write by candlelight because I was woo or anything. You know, it wasn't a new age spiritual thing that would bring the writing. It was just that it was more pragmatic. But I've realised that, you know, it, I'm getting worse and worse. I, I can imagine that by the time I write my 10th novel, I'll be sort of shouting out, hello, is there anyone listening? Um, <laughs> because I'll have sort of issued all technology um and again with swimming home uh i've used that that methodology of writing a lot in notebooks my favorite notebook at the moment is a very plain covered moleskin um that's about quarto size and i just sort of draw and write and um do little doodads until until i come a time when i feel like i need to move to the screen um and then i do so it's a very pragmatic um, way of talking about how I approach things. Um, the most helpful things along the way um, to me in that process have been uh, reading Annie Dillard for it, that the writing life to, to really think about what the writer's life is like and that mm. that, it, that maybe it's a bit normal um, how excruciating this feels. You know that saying that writing a novel is easy. You just sit down. Um, at the computer until your forehead starts bleeding. Yeah, yeah. Um, uh, but the the other book that I found helpful in a very practical sense was um, a book from uh, screenwriting, which was Linda Seeger's Making a Good Script Great. Um, and that really only applies if you're the kind of writer I am who writes a messy draft all over the place and then needs to sort of story it at some um, stage. Her book is great for that because okay. it, um, it 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 gives you really the the tools to do that. It talks about plot lines and you know uh, beats and turning points and you know you know it sort of helps you structure things. Okay. So that was a very long answer to no, a no, very short No, no, but we had to go through five novels, so it's going to take a while, isn't it? So you know, yeah. you know you've got a body of work to discuss. <laughs> so um, all right, then what would you say is the biggest lesson that you've learned through writing five novels, apart from the fact that they're all difficult? Yeah, that's a hard question. I think that um, I think that from where I sit now, I would say that it's really important to to write what you can uniquely write, and and not be influenced over much by by market certainly, mm. and even by rejections from publishers because I think they don't necessarily know what readers will read, but to go with what is in your heart and you can uniquely offer. And then having said that, I think that the people to listen to and the people I think I've tried to listen to as I've developed as a writer, certainly in the last couple of books, are people who read books. And I think we often are quite disparaging about readers. We, we, we value expert readers um, and publishers are expert readers and editors are, but but people who just go to the beach and read a book, when you listen to them, you know, you, you, you begin to understand what it is that they look for in a book. Um, and I think that's writing the, the, the story that you uniquely can write is, is important and not 
not trying to kind of be successful, but trying to write the story you can write. And um, and if you're going to listen to anyone, listen to people who read, um, because that's that's who you're ultimately writing for. Hmm. That's, yeah, that's a, it's a that's an interesting thought because I I think that often when we talk about writing, that message can be lost, kind of people. You know, it's all write what you want to write, and you know, write for markets. And but you know, the, the poor old reader does tend to get a little bit forgotten out there. Yes. Hmm. Interesting. All right. So tell us about the inspiration for swimming home. So swimming home, uh, and and this should be easy, but because I am an organic writer, this is um, never an easy thing. And and this is only the second time I've had to tell anyone about the inspiration for <laughs> swimming home. So. <laughs> If I mess this up, Alison, you have to edit it. I'm sure you'll do an excellent job. Okay. So all, all of my novels, uh, and, and this gets back to what I said about a unique tr- trigger, all of my novels, and in fact The Birth Wars, the non-fiction book I wrote, have ha- had an intellectual trigger um, and an emotional trigger. And so within Falling Snow, you know, it was finding out about the hospital at Royamont and these incredible doctors and what they did um, with the sort of intellectual trigger. And the emotional trigger was probably my grandmother, who was that generation of women and who'd been very important in my life, um, passing away and just thinking about her life and how might it have been different. With Swimming Home, my great-uncle, Renee McCall, was a a journalist in the 1930s and 40s, um, extraordinarily talented, obviously, but also had great opportunities. So he he was there when King George died. Um, he was there through the coronation of Edward and the abdication and the coronation of the, the next King George. Um, he lunched with Marilyn Monroe. He was behind the Iron Curtain. He was this extraordinarily colourful figure who made his name on Fleet Street in the 1930s. But when he was a very young man, 22, and just down from Oxford, he met up with a really wealthy American businessman named Van Lear Black, who was a newspaper publisher staying in London, who offered him a job as his confidential secretary. So my great-uncle at the age of 21, and Van Lear Black was an odd fellow, um, and he he's he quite a visionary in one way. He, he believed that... Uh, flying, which had only really taken off in World War One, taken off in World War One, that was an unintentional pun, <laughs> would be the kind of thing of the And so Van Lear Black flew, he, he, he rented a plane and a pilot and he hammered canvas seats in the back of it and he flew all around the place and he took my great-uncle with him. Mm-hmm. And my great-uncle wrote a book called A Flying Start. So I started out thinking, I'm going to write a book about a journalist and started writing. But as I wrote two things kept happening. One, I kept um, getting dragged, uh, Van Lee Black drowned, oh. and I kept getting dragged back into water and swimming, um, which had been really a very big part of my childhood, um, not in a, in, a, in a gifted and talented way, more in a struggling up the pool to get their way, but, but, but I, you know, swim as an adult. Um, and so over time, this character started to emerge, this young woman, a swimmer, who is free, who is able to uh, swim whenever she wants at a time when women weren't able to swim whenever they want. And the reason for that is that she lives on an island in, to Australia's north, at, in the Torres Strait Islands, and she has grown up with an islander family and, and her father, her uh, English father, who's the doctor on the island, 
and she's learned to swim. And so this character just sort of kept emerging. And so I, I kind of, I sort of dropped the the, the kind of journalist and um, and our businessman, you know, briefly. That they are in the novel, but it, but this swimmer really kind of took over. And I I, I wanted to bring her into the world where women didn't have the freedom that she'd had. And uh, luckily, in, in the kind of early stages, still in the early stages of the writing, I'm still in notebooks, um, an aunt turned up who is her aunt who is successful. She's a medical doctor, so she's fought a lot of battles against men in the 19, you know, uh, early, sort of late 19th, early 20th century. She's a practicing medical doctor, but she's incredibly controlled and quite controlling. And she's very closed down for reasons that become obvious during the novel. Mm. And so these two characters meet up. And then they meet up with um, my wealthy American businessman, Manfred Lear Black, and um, his confidential secretary, um, Andrew McIntosh, who, okay. who, who is based broadly on those other characters. And the swimmer, she just wants to swim. And Manfred Lear Black, who's lost a mother and sister to drowning, wants to see her be the first woman to swim the English Channel. And the aunt has her own views about it, and so we're off with a book. Um, right. And that's what I meant. It was a very long explanation, and I'm sorry about that. No, that's okay. So, but, you know, how long does it let, – let's just – speaking of how long things take, like how long did that process take, like to go from this idea that you would write something based on your great-uncle to this whole story about a swimmer emerging and then you sort of like managing to get a first draft together? Like what's the, how long is that a pro, how long does that process take? Um, my my great uncle and Van Leer Black, I would have found out about. I, I would have been aware of that and wanting to write about that at the time I was working on In Falling Snow, mm-hmm. and so that's you know that's a very long gestation because In Falling Snow took ten or twelve years. Um, this one, the writing has been quicker. And I think that's because I'm trusting the process more. I think with in falling snow, for instance, so, so this is the other thing I will say about, um, you said about what have you learned about writing. The other thing I've learned is that the writer never knows really what the reader will find um, helpful. You know, I, I'm a great believer in the reader rewriting the book, but even in a very pra- on a very practical level, in, in falling snow... <laughs> Uh, is set in this World War One hospital run entirely by women. And I thought these women were amazing and fantastic. But when I came to write about them, I thought, oh, I'm not doing them any justice at all. I should minimise those chapters of the book because people will just find them really boring. And, of course, it's that's the bit of the book people have loved the most. Oh, you know? really? But you don't know that as a, as a, as a writer. And so with um, Swimming Home, it's had a much faster... Uh, sort of writing process. I think because I just let go when when the swimming when Catherine um, started emerging as a character and Louisa, her aunt, started emerging as a character. Instead of struggling on, I mean, I know that's not what I'm writing about. I'm writing about a journalist. I kind of went with it. Yeah, fair more. Yeah. Um, and so yeah, it's much you know, and and I'm slow at the beginning, then very fast in the middle, um, and then um, you know, I just love that. I love the penultimate draft where you you you're doing the sort of um, the final tweaks to get it sort of to where you want it. Mm, okay. All right. So just switching gears slightly, you have a son at primary school. Um, do you ever find it difficult to juggle family and writing? Like, what are your tactics for that kind of stuff? <laughs> 
Well, um, I think I think you know uh, uh, every every mother on the planet finds this difficult. Mm. You know whether you whether you're juggling you know, motherhood. Motherhood mm. is, is challenging. Um, Strangely, in falling snow is, is a, and, and swimming home to a, to to a, in a different way. They're both books about motherhood, mm. um, and in falling snow addresses very directly this tension that women face, but, but in the choice of am I going to have a meaningful career life. Or am I going to have a family? Mm. Um, which was a very stark choice in the 1920s, and uh, so in the in the during in the sort of 1910s before mm. World War One. And interestingly, although I didn't I didn't do this consciously in, it, while I was writing, in Falling Snow is set in two important periods in our history. The first was World War One, when women didn't have any of those freedoms, so you had a career or family and the second period was the 1970s which was just the beginning of women being able to have it all um and of course we know now that that was a complete crock you know that that having it all actually isn't uh, having it all at all it's just becoming um you know going slowly or quickly insane um because you're trying to sort of do everything and be everything and so grace in in falling snow is in that first generation of women um who were young careers and had kids, and you know it, the, the pressures are there. Um, and I, I'm, I, I, I don't know if you've read the piece by Anne Marie Slaughter on. She was in uh, Hillary Clinton's uh, State Department in mm. a very senior role, and she was commuting from uh, Washington to wherever her husband and two sons, who were older than our kids, her sons were um, teenagers and at high school, and she just said, "I cannot do this." Anymore. Anymore, mm. I either I either um, give to my family or I give to my job. I can't do this job anymore, and she quit. Mm. And she wrote an essay in the Atlantic, and it really, you know, it sort of has created a fury among uh, well, just about everybody for one reason or another. But I think that we need to have that conversation. I think that the pressure on I think for my generation it was a lot easier, and I had my son late in life, so I sort of had fair bit of career experience, but I think young women today in careers face just dreadful, dreadful pressures, you know, mm. the pressure to um, stay in a career, to leave the career and have children early because their uh, clock is ticking, to get back to work within six months, yeah. um, it, you know, we, we just, we haven't we haven't accommodated that well at all. And as a writer, um, I think it's the easiest job in the world to accommodate it, and I find it difficult. How much harder must it be for women who've got a front up to really important meetings and, you know, I just... I, I, researching the birth wars, it was, this was the big issue for women. How on earth do I have a reasonable life and be a reasonable mother? One, one woman I can remember I interviewed telling me, my me time is between 4.30 and 5.30 in the morning. And, and, and she was telling me this as, as a, uh, it's lucky I've got me time. <laughs> like, mm. You know, so I think this is a big, big issue. Um, and swimming home kind of addresses this in another way, but it's still back there in motherhood and career. Motherhood and career. I think it's a, I think it's the issue for um, our time. I think you're right about that. All right. Well, just to finish up today, what are your top three tips for aspiring writers? I wish I had time to think about these questions. I know, My top I'm so three sorry. Tips. I should have told you about this earlier, shouldn't I? 
Yeah, I do one. like to I do like to spring it on people just to see what they can come up with. <laughs> well, I think I think finding your own unique voice and and, the, and 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 I don't mean that in a toy way. I mean you know saying what you can uniquely say, and I think that that's true of all of us. We've all got something that we can say that no one else can. Um, I think that's that's probably uh, number one. Um, and related to that. Um, I think everybody in writing thinks that the next the next thing will be will be the thing that'll make them happy. It seems to be a career like that. And um I think I've been um a little bit successful as a writer and I've been incredibly unsuccessful over times as a writer. And I don't think either of those things ultimately improved my writing or made me happier as a person. I think What's made me most happy is actually um, playing with words and going off into a story. Um, and the fact that we is read what I write is a bonus, but but the journey has got to be, has got to be why you do it. I think mm. it's too hard to do it just for ego. Do you know what I mean? It's, yeah. it's too much work to do it just so that people will read it. Um, I think. I think. Yeah, I think related to the first point. So your own unique voice is the first point, and, and the second point is, you know, do it for it, for itself. And uh, I think the third one for me, um, the thing that I've kind of learned most over the last twenty years would be that as a person, I am much more than just a writer, and that, um, and I think having children really for. Um, is, is part of this that I don't think there'll be anything in my life that compares with being a mother. I can't imagine there being anything that is as as kind of searingly life changing and in you know for, for positive and negative and absolutely transformative as that. I can't I can't think that there would be another thing. Maybe a religious vocation or something would be, but I can't think that there would be and so bearing in mind that there are many other things that you are um, other than a writer, and I'm now going to add a fourth one because mm-hmm. uh, I've thought of one. Um, mm-hmm. Those three things are more lifestyle things, but in terms of actual writing, there's a great, great Zen Buddhist um, writing instructor named Gail Sher, and she's written a book called Four Noble Truths About Writing. I can rem- never remember that the other three, but the first noble truth about writing is that writers write, and um, that is the most soothing thing for um, my first and second points, that where you get caught up in your ego and you think you're not published and all of that. Writers write. The only thing that separates um, writers from people who are not writing, uh, who are not writers, is that writers write. So it actually all that other stuff, I was going to use another word there, but I didn't. All that other stuff doesn't matter. What matters, that what makes you a writer is that you're writing because okay. writers write. That's all they do, they write. All right. Well, that's excellent advice. So thank you so much for that, um, Mary Rose. And thank you very much for talking with us today. Good luck with your new novel, Swimming Home. And um, we shall catch up with you another time. Thank you. Um, thank, thank you, Alison. And thank you for those very uh, thoughtful, actually, questions. Oh, you're welcome. <laughs> Great interview. Yeah, it was really interesting. So it was so nice. The audio was a little bit dodgy in some places. I'm hoping that that was kind of sorted out. But she's um, she's got a lot of great things to say, and you know, like she's seen quite a lot in the publishing industry, which is always 
an interesting perspective. Yeah, brilliant, brilliant. Mm. And the Vogel is such a good thing for, you know, you have to be under 35, of course. So if there's mm. there, if there are listeners who are under 35 and you've got a novel coming out or you, a novel that you're writing, hey, consider the Vogel. I think I think it, it's called the Australian slash Vogel yes, Literary yes. Awards now, isn't it? Yeah. That's right, the Australian yeah. Slash Vogel. Slash Vogel. <laughs> Love a good slash. All uh, right. A friend, so, of mine, a friend of mine won the Vogel Ooh. some years back and um, she, you know, it was announced on the night she went up to get her $20,000 check and they handed her a $20,000 check and three loaves of bread. You know, because it was it's the Vogel. Oh, I didn't know that. <laughs> that never even occurred to me. <laughs> That's hilarious. There you go. She got <laughs> on, on the night $20,000 and three loaves of bread. <laughs> that would have kept her going for a good week, you know. You know, well, there's only one of her living at home. <laughs> oh, probably going to freeze it, babe. I know. Anyway, let us move on to let us, uh, please, our freezing bread. Let's move on. <laughs> <laughs> Let's move on to our app pick for the week. Now, my app pick for the week is actually really useful, I think, to bloggers. So we're just talking um, before the interview about, uh, you know, if you have an author blog. But I like Trello.com. That's T-R-E-L-L-O.com. And it's free. So basically what Trello is kind of like, it's electronic. So you can have it on your phone or your desktop, but I think it's best for me anyway, on my desktop. And you can have different uh, columns, so to speak. So that if you're blogging, what you can do is have different columns for ideas, and then you can have one for work in progress. Oh. Then you can have one for scheduled. And then when you, then you can have one, say, for done. Because you can just chuckle your, your ideas and it's, they, they, they appear in their, their own little sort of index card or post-it note sort of thing. And um, you can have each idea on a different card or, or post-it note. And when you're ready to write it, because sometimes you just have ideas but you're not ready to write them, uh, you can then move it to the work in progress file mm -hmm. and then when that is done you can move it into the, the scheduled so that it's scheduled to go on your blog at one at, at, on one particular day and and then you can also move it into the done pile so at any point you just have this visual representation of where all of your blog posts and ideas are at mm -hmm. so i think that trello.com mm -hmm. is you do uh, love a good yeah. organization tool don't you yes i do i have mm -hmm. to say so you know and they go in and out of favor with me i use whatever's working for me at the time but i think that's a good one all right. Thanks for sharing, Val. Yes. So our working writer's tip this week is one that I – a question that I hear a lot. And in this day and age, because, you know, gone are the days, Alison, where if you're a freelance writer, you know, back in the day. Back in the day, Valerie. Yeah. If you're a freelance writer, they, in, you know, you wanted to write for a particular publication because then there weren't many online publications. They were mainly print. And if you wanted to write for a print publication, you kind of knew, well, if you're a freelance writer, you're going to get paid a certain freelance rate for it. But then over the last 10 years, a whole heap of online uh, publications sprung up. But a lot of print publications also sprung up uh, who don't necessarily pay. They're not mm -hmm. like traditional publications because then maybe they don't pay because they are a uh, perhaps a member uh, publication. So you might be a member of an association and everyone in that association gets that publication, mm. but that association doesn't pay because they see it as a way for members to contribute. Or some online publications may or may not pay or some magazines whether they're print or online just don't have the budget to pay 
Now, I'm not saying that's right or wrong, but the question is, before you waste your time, if you do want to be paid, before you waste your time pitching to that publication only to be told, oh, actually, we don't pay after your pitch gets accepted, and potentially you've missed out you know, on the opportunity of pitching at somebody else, somewhere else that does pay, how do you find out if a publication pays? Because you think you can avoid that awkward, oh, well, sorry, I don't want to work with you because I want to get paid situation, right? Why? So how do you find out if a publication pays before going through the hassle of actually pitching? Well, you could do a couple of things. Mm-hmm. Um, first of all, I have a very good extended network of freelance writers so mm. I could ask them yes there's usually someone who's Who you know written somewhere and blah 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 mm. otherwise I just I ask them mm. I just ask the publication before mm. I pitch anything Fair just enough. send me a to tell you know what to ask them what their rates are yes I'll check the website because often you know if it's an online publication or even a, a print publication these days there will be a website and they will have somewhere on there, you know, we do not pay for submissions at this time or whatever. Mm. Um, but, yeah, usually asking. What, what do you do, Val? Uh, again, the first one I agree with, which yeah. is um, asking your network of freelance writers, and that's why I always encourage people who are freelance writers to develop that network. And yeah. if you're a graduate of the Australian Writers' Centre, you've joined our graduate community, you've been given the opportunity to join our graduate community for free. And that's an amazing resource because you can ask all sorts of questions in there. Mm. Um, but I tend actually not to going, go straight out and say, hey, do you pay? Because... Um, I tend to number two do I do look at the website like or like you mm-hmm. said because sometimes they simply state it. But mm-hmm. number three, just deduct a few things by logic because if there's, for example, lots of advertisements in in the publication, mm-hmm. then and and they're advertisements that are high quality advertisements, then chances are they've got revenue and therefore a budget to pay. Mm-hmm. And uh, if they have, if they're, if it's a skinny publication with hardly any ads, and if you look at the quality also of the writing, and you see that the writing quality isn't necessarily of a certain standard, that may give you an indication that the publication doesn't pay either. So I tend to do those things first before then, you know, asking the question or pitching an idea along with the question. Well, I would do that too, but I, I also, I just don't think you should be embarrassed about asking the question because at the end of the day, I think publications that don't pay should be embarrassed about, <laughs> about not paying. So I think, you know, it's a, it's a fair question. So I have absolutely no issue whatsoever. Like if you can't, you know, I, I do all the things that, that we talked about and I agree with you. Like if there's a huge big, um, if there's a huge big credit, you know, byline at the bottom of a story that just tells you the person's, you know, what they had for breakfast as mm. well as their website. That's often an indication that a publication doesn't pay, et cetera. Yes. Um, but seriously, like if you really want a definitive answer, just ask because, yes. you know, you've got every right to know before they accept your pitch. I think that's fair enough, but I disagree with uh, saying that publications who don't pay should be, you know, ashamed of themselves because, like well, I said... I'm not saying they should be ashamed, but I don't think you should be ashamed of asking either. Sure. Because you're a professional, you're right, you know, you're a freelance writer, you're a professional, you have the, every right to know whether or not you're going to get paid for your work or not. Fair and, enough. you know, like I've, I always feel really sorry for new writers who, who do all go through, jump through the hoops and then, then get told that they, lo- they love the story, but, oh, by the way, we don't Hey, well, you know what? Mm. Mm. You should have said so up front. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Fair enough. All right. So that brings us to the end of this week's podcast.
Goodness Allison, me, yes. how did we get to this point so soon, I, buddy? I, <laughs> just outrageous. What are you doing this week now that school holidays is almost at an end? Oh, I'm catching up. That's what I'm doing. I'm I'm playing catch up. I've got so many things I need to do. I'm I'm supposed to have uh, edited a a new piece of um, a new children's novel that I'm working on mm. um, for my publisher, and I haven't done it because I've been no had no time to think. So I'm catching up on that. I am catching up on finishing Build Your Writer Platform, which mm. you know we've talked about. Um, I'm just catching up on a thousand things, and I'm hoping that three days by the end of this week, I'm hoping that I'm just going to be on fire with all of those things. I'm worried that I'm not going to be. <laughs> yes, I understand. <laughs> I may need to be more realistic, but you know, at this stage, I'm optimistic and excited. <laughs> what about you? What are you doing? Well, for the next little while, every time you ask me that question, I'm going to be telling you that I'm reading 810,000 mm, words. Of course you are. Because <laughs> every spare minute is being spent doing that. But I have to say, I'm actually really enjoying it. I I really am. I am. I didn't think I would hate it or anything. Otherwise, why would I agree to do it? But mm. I am really impressed by some of the talent that's out there. So well, that's it's, excellent. It's yeah. always good to love your work. Yes, there you go. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, where do we find you on social media, Alice? Uh, you will find online? me on Twitter at, at Al Tate, A-L-T-A-I-T. You will find me on Facebook at Alison Tate Writer, um, and that's where you'll find the link to the Facebook group if you would like to join us for NaNoWriMo. And you will find me, of course, at alisontate.com. Wonderful. And you'll find me on social media at Valerie Koo on Twitter and Instagram. And uh, I'm also on Facebook, so uh, join me there. But uh, if you have a question that you would like us to answer in our Working Writers Tip, please do email us, podcast at writerscentre.com.au. And uh, do join us on the newsletter. Uh, you'll find it at writerscentre.com.au slash news because uh, there's lots of uh, useful tips and resources in there as well. But until next week, we'll talk to you then. Bye. This week's giveaway is the novel Gun Control by Peter Corris. This is his latest novel about Cliff Hardy, which sees Hardy hired by an entrepreneur and one-time pistol shooting champion to investigate the violent death of his troubled son. Soon, Hardy is pitched into a world of crooked cops, former members of the gun control unit, outlaw bikies and honest police trying to quietly clean the stables. Visit writerscentre.com.au slash win for your chance to win. Entries close Monday 12th October 2015, but if you're listening to this podcast in the future, don't worry. There'll be a new book giveaway at writerscentre.com.au slash win that you can check out. In the meantime, if you're looking for the show notes to this episode, go to writerscentre.com.au slash podcast. <laughs>